Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am your co-host, Phil. And I have to say, seeing this movie in IMAX was pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, man. You basically stole my, my opening thing. <laughs> uh, uh, well. I'm Andrew. I'm your other co-host. And what I was going to say is that uh, more people should be doing what Christopher Nolan does and <laughs> actually filming in this amazing format. Uh, because yeah. even I can't even imagine that people seeing it in 70 millimeter just on a two, three, five screen would have the same experience as seeing it on an actual IMAX screen because it is so overwhelming. It is so incredibly enveloping in every way that mm-hmm. it totally changes the cinematic experience completely. Yeah, we're gonna have a great, great time geeking out about this movie. Yeah, we are. Uh, it's it's uh, Dunkirk, the new film by Christopher Nolan which has already gotten heaps of critical praise and it's already making a lot of money. Uh, Before we get into the discussion, though, um, I want to tell you guys out there where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog, which is found at www.in-the-q.com. And we also have a Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In The Q. Q Q-U-E-U-E is how it's spelled. Both those places, you can find all of our episodes. Uh, you can leave comments for us. We prefer that you do that on our Facebook page because then we can actually get in touch with you. And if you want to be on the show, we can bring you on and you can talk about the movie of your choice. Also, we have a Twitter account. It is at ITQ Podcast. And lastly, you can find us on iTunes and Podcast and Overcast aggregate apps. And probably other places, too, you can find us. Um, So, without further ado, here is the trailer for Dunkirk. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. What of ours? He's on me. I'm on him. Sailors, not the bloody navy. You should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. surrender. 
Where's the bloody Air Force? That was the trailer for Dunkirk, and uh, this film examines the uh, famous uh, situation that the Allied soldiers found themselves in uh, fairly early into World War II in 1940, Yeah, when they were uh, trapped um, uh, by the uh, Nazis, by the Advancing German forces. Um, and they were driven to the uh, the beaches of Dunkirk in France, and they were basically tra- there were about four hundred thousand men, I believe, who were there, and they were getting picked off by airplanes. Um, the film basically examines three different sort of uh, settings for the story. It examines the uh, the soldiers who are on the beach and trying to get back to England. Mm-hmm. It examines the uh, Royal Air Force fighters and planes flying above the beach. And it examines the um, uh, pleasure boaters and uh, British fishermen. Uh, civilians, fishermen yeah. who uh, who uh, rode across or drove their boat across the channel to try and rescue as many soldiers as they could. And this film does not have what you would traditionally call one hero. No, uh, I would say rather it's kind of like a tapestry of the different people involved in the situation. Certainly, uh, reminded me of one of Nolan's favorite films, The Thin Red Line. In mm. that regard, mm-hmm. um, as a war film that doesn't that kind of presents many different supporting characters. Yeah, um, the experience of watching Dunkirk and IMAX was incredible, and uh, I think Nolan has definitely made good on the promise he showed with interstellar which is a film that i also saw in imax yeah but uh you perhaps just the subject matter of this film being a war movie lends itself to that kind of an immersive experience um yeah and and is incredibly powerful the sound design in particular is if this doesn't not all of the sound design awards i don't know what the academy is thinking because yeah it was especially with that IMAX sound, those huge four-story speakers that they have, you know, those massive, Mm -hmm. massive speakers. It was so intense, and it was so... uh, The sound design of it... I I, I recall there there are segments in this film when the fighter uh, pilot, played by Tom Hardy, is Mm -hmm. strafing a, a bomber, right? Yeah. Um, as it's trying to to drop bombs on the destroyers that are going to pick up the the men at Dunkirk Beach, and the bomber has belly gunners and and uh, gunners you know tail gunners and all that kind of stuff who are uh, trying to keep the the fighters off of it. And that that sound that sound of the uh, you, you you know you could hear the <laughs> Tom Hardy's. Uh, machine guns go off and it's this kind of high pitched and kind of tick, 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 tick. you can hear the yeah, yeah. individual impacts and then you hear this boom, 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 boom. and it's such a concussively loud and terrifying mm-hmm. sound to yeah. hear it just like it, it had me terrified the uh, the sound effects too have an amazing analog like quality an amazing kind oh, of yeah. period uh appropriateness yeah that i think should definitely be singled out as being a, a, a great achievement especially considering how digital everything is these days 
the sound effects, the, the sounds of those guns going off just sound completely accurate to me and completely believable. Yeah. Um, just the, the recreation of the period in general is flawless in every single way. Yeah. Um, we see, we see the characters on trains, um, on pleasure boats, on, uh, you know, uh, walking through the streets of Dunkirk with these flyers that come down from the air. The very first shot is quite good because it sets up the entire premise of the film yeah. visually yeah. and immediately. Um, we see these allied soldiers kind of walking through these cobblestone streets with these flyers everywhere. And, um, the, they look at the flyer and it just tells you well, you're surrounded. Basically. We have you surrounded. It has, yeah. uh, arrows pointing to the beaches of Dunkirk and uh, it's a brilliant way to set up the film because it tells you visually exactly what the stakes are and what's what the what you're playing for interestingly uh, this film is not based on any kind of additional novel or no or story it's all kind of from the imagination of Christopher Nolan as he perceived what it felt like back then yeah, and I the uh, the actual flyers that they that they discover in the first scene, I think is probably the only uh, published material that this film refers to. I think it's yeah. mostly just meant meant to be uh, an immersive experience about a, a very important event. Yeah, and and that immersiveness is in every regard uh, so high. He not just the sound design, which we talked about, not just the seventy millimeter uh, IMAX film that he shot on, um, that is so incredibly. You know, when you when you're sitting in that IMAX theater and it's just filling the screen top to bottom, it 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 completely occupies your entire field of vision. You cannot see anything but this massive screen. Um, it becomes such an immersive experience, but not just that, but the way that the, the film focuses, the way that the film is written, uh, which I might say this looks like it's for the first film that he's written without his brother. Is, am I uh, right about yeah, that? I think you're right. Yeah, pretty sure. Um, Jonathan Nolan has been with him from the beginning, from his first film, and written all of those films with him. But this one, he, he has single, single credit, I believe. Jonathan Nolan, yeah, of course, is, is doing Westworld on HBO, which is its own fascinating um, piece of filmmaking. Uh, but the way that this film is written, it is, as you said earlier, Phil, it's not about any one particular soldier or mm. uh, pilot or, you know, captain. It is about all of them. And, and there are ones that we follow, you know, um, essentially the way that you split it up in the beginning, Phil, gets even more fascinating when you look at the, uh, the construction of the film because not only is it about a pilot, uh, a pleasure boat captain, and a single soldier on the, the beach at Dunkirk, but each of those sections of the film, the first time that we encounter it in the film, it gives us a, these are the only superimposed titles that we have in the entire movie. Um, and the first one is Land. That's for the soldier who's on the beach. It says Land, mm-hmm. Seven Days. Then it says... C shows us the the first time we see the the sea captain played by Mark Rylance in a spectacular performance. Mm. Uh, it says C and it says one day. And then it says air, the first time that we meet Tom Hardy and his uh, his co uh, his the other Royal Air Force other, other Royal Air Force pilot. 
that, that he is uh, duking out, you know, fighting with against the Germans. Um, and it says air one hour. And then as in classic Christopher Nolan fashion, he then spends the rest of the film playing with time, right? So in other words, we see these three stories, but the story that we're seeing on land takes place over the course of seven days. The story that we see taking place on sea takes uh, place over the course of 24 hours. And then the story we, story we see taking place in the air takes place over the course of one hour. But mm. these are all intermixed. They're all interwoven with one another. So we are seeing events in one have an effect on the events in the other, despite the fact that they are on such drastically different timelines that you would think that it would be hard to weave this together. But brilliantly, <laughs> uh, in the same way that I, I think that uh, Nolan's uh, manipulation of time in Inception was so brilliant um, in the way that mm-hmm. different levels of the dream have different um, kinds of, of time in the same way that uh, p- parts of Interstellar, I thought were really, really interesting and really brilliant in terms of ma- the manipulation of time and, and, and what time is and what it means. This movie, even though it's a ostensibly a pretty straightforward war film still has this Nolan preoccupation with time yeah. and and how time is fractured and how time is experienced and how time uh, is it can be manipulated in order to ratchet up our tension and our immersiveness as an audience and it really it's playing with us, us as much as it is with the story itself. And I think that a film like this is so strong and it it could have been. Much it could have been a bloated mess, really. But Christopher Nolan's restraint and his craft is so strong here because uh, there's there's actually a minimal amount of dialogue in this yeah. film uh, for what it is. It's really telling the story visually. And when I heard that he was making a movie about Dunkirk after Interstellar, I just kind of assumed that it was going to be three hours long. Um, yeah. And I assumed that it was going to be full of really graphic war violence. Well, it's under two hours, and the violence is actually very, very minimal. Yeah, uh, it doesn't really dwell on much bloodshed, um, and I think that because it's, I mean, when you're looking at every single new superhero that movie movie that comes out is two and a half hours long. Yeah, uh, I think Nolan's decision to to manipulate time in the way that he did uh, keeps the film sharp. And, yeah. and concise and uh, and not self-indulgent in the least. Uh, he could have he could have not even bothered with the time puzzle and just not even had those titles and just made it all seem like it was all happening at once. Uh, but then what he might have ended up with was a film that was longer, less focused, yeah. um, perhaps uh, maybe even confusing. Um, but what everybody is saying really about Dunkirk and I agree is that it's one of the best movies of the year so far. Definitely. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, people have said that there's no such thing as a truly anti-war film because, uh, all films make war look exciting. Sure. And, uh, this film certainly does that. And the sound effects, um, it's funny. I was never, (laughs) I don't say I was ever terrified at one moment in this film. I was just in rapturous awe of everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And when when hearing the sound effects, uh, so many of them, the gunfire would just 
come abruptly out of nowhere. Yeah. And I could feel people next to me flinch and, and, and as they should, because it, it, it has that kind of effect. But strangely for me, uh, I, I felt like I was on a roller coaster the whole time. Yeah. And it was it was the kind of roller coaster that that I like, which is not a roller coaster, but actually <laughs> a film. And it was just such an amazing sensory experience. And and yes, more people should be doing this. And I hope that more filmmakers will see Dunkirk and have their mind blown and think, yes, that's what a film can be. Yeah. And that's what I want to do with my films. That's what I want people to I want people to see Dunkirk and think that, yes, films are more than just what you watch on your tablets, but they can be totally immersive experiences. Yeah, and, and, and this is one of those things. I've seen, I saw this movie in IMAX. I saw Interstellar in IMAX. I saw Inception in IMAX theater. I don't remember if there's, I don't think there's anything in that film that was filmed in IMAX. I just saw it on a big screen. And I saw The Dark Knight in IMAX, which did have some sequences in it that were filmed uh in IMAX. And for that matter, I saw the dark Knight rises all in the same theater at 68th street and Broadway, by the way, <laughs> um, every single one of them. It's the did only you get IMAX. one movie for free after you saw all those. No, sadly I did not. Uh, I still had to pay $27 for this ticket. Oh, yikes. Yeah, I know it's, it's painful. Um, but all of those, uh, experiences, uh, Christopher Nolan is clearly, do- clearly doing something that nobody else is doing in the industry right yeah. now. Um, the closest that, that has come to it, of course, is Quentin Tarantino with uh, The Hateful Eight and doing the 70mm Roadshow production and all of that fun stuff. Or Paul Thomas Anderson, when he did The Master, of course, projected that in 70mm as well. Yeah. Which which I, I saw both of those in 70mm as well, but they weren't quite doing the same thing. I remember watching Inception in the theater and uh, and thinking to myself, wow, this guy is really doing interesting, new, original stuff that nobody else is doing. And a lot of people have their issues with Inception, and that's fine. Um, I don't have the issues that other people have with the, <laughs> with the film. Mm. I think it's spectacular. Um, same with The Dark Knight. Uh, same with Interstellar. Although I, I, Interstellar is the least successful of all of those to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but he's doing something that, that nobody else is doing. He's relying on practical effects. He's shooting on film. Not just any film, but this super huge film format that preserves super high fidelity and, and gives you an experience that really can't be had in any other way. I mean, there's nothing like going and seeing a movie like Dunkirk in the theater, in an IMAX theater, and really having your hair blown back by the, the yeah. entire experience of it. And, uh, and of course, the only reason that this man can do this is because he's made Warner Brothers some, you know, two and a half billion dollars off of his movies <laughs> over the... Uh, over the years, yeah, he, he's an example of a of a successful filmmaker who's also a successful artist. Yeah, and there's not many people like that around. There's, I mean, you could probably count them all on one hand. Yeah. Um, but the fact that you mentioned Tarantino and Anderson with Nolan, uh, it's it's very interesting to me as somebody who makes video essays that those three guys, yeah, are all champions of film and they try to preserve. In this in this particular example, the large format film cameras. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and on a side note, the other director that seems to get mentioned as much as those three guys is Wes Anderson. Sure. As somebody that a lot of people are obsessed with these days, who's making what a lot of people consider to be original work. 
And uh, in his own way, Wes Anderson is preserving the smaller formats of film. Yeah. Because yeah. he shot Moonrise Kingdom on Super 16. Yep. And he, he shot Grand Budapest in the 4 to 3 format. So these guys that seem to have captured the imagination of a whole generation of cinephiles are all working to preserve film history in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, it's no coincidence that these are the foremost auteurs in uh, American cinema today, right? Yeah. In world cinema, you, you might even say. Um, they're, they're really the people who have the strongest, most distinctive and recognizable voices in uh, the cinema. And even Nolan, who is often accused of having really flat movies or overly cerebral films or ones where it's ninety percent exposition, ten percent action. Uh, I don't agree with any of those criticisms because I think that his movies function as grand entertainment in a in a really uh, uh, titillating way. In terms of like your, sure. your brain is is turned on by his movies, even if um, you know the the people who like to sound smart amongst us like to tear them down and be like, oh, that's so simplistic. It's so dumb. It's so easy. It's like, but it isn't, though. His storytelling mm -hmm. is on point, and he is always keeping us uh, on the edge, guessing, wondering what's going on. And this movie is no exception to that. This movie, uh, that the, the piecing together of the timelines that you're doing while you're watching this movie, trying to understand which events are happening in whose timeline at what point, uh, gets to a frenetic pace by the time you get to the, the, the climax of the film. And he uses such simple uh, devices to make this happen. There's, at the very beginning, uh, you see Tom Hardy uh, as the fighter pilot checking his watch. And then mm -hmm. every time we come back to the fighter pilots, overlaid through the entirety of those sequences from beginning to end is the sound of a watch ticking. Just ticking, 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 ticking. And it was even in the trailer that we just listened to. It right. just it, it immediately orients you as a viewer into which timeline you're in, right? Aside from the mm -hmm. fact that you're in planes and you should be able to just sort of deduce, oh, now we're in the air, it's the one-hour timeline. You're, you're, <laughs> it, it, it orients you as the viewer immediately on a subconscious level. Um, and it, that is so, so smart and so uh, well-executed. Yeah. Um, yeah, and with the greatest films, I think they they can appeal to the highest intellectual and the dumbest illiterate. Sure. And uh, you know, Werner Herzog said that uh, filmmaking is the medium of a of illiteracy because it is it's focused on the kind of the the impact of, of visuals, of images, and sound. Uh, Herzog sure, was sure. particularly concerned about images, but in this case, you know. You've got a film that functions both as a sensory experience of what it's like to be in a war, um, and yet, uh, as you were saying, Andrew, with the sort of the way that he's manipulating time, there's a, there's a higher plane to it as well. Um, there's 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 something for everybody, is what I'm saying. Yeah. With oh, a, yeah. a film like this, and um, you know, I think that. Any kind of a film that a, a war film in particular 
that doesn't necessarily give you much in the way of the big picture, you know, because yeah, we've already yeah. seen so many war films about World War II that gave you the big picture yep. and gave you the broad overview of the war, what what the generals were doing, what the major figures were doing, what was Hitler doing, what was Churchill doing. This is a film that sort of shows you the whole picture by focusing on one smaller piece of the puzzle. And... I was uncertain about this movie going in because I was thinking like, okay, so uh, am I going to be made to feel entertained by watching uh, a failure in military strategy? Because this is not a film about typical heroics that you would sure. see. This is a film about a retreat at, at its essence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, But the tagline of this movie also... Uh, totally embraces that the tag one of the taglines anyway is that um survival is victory okay? yeah so um that's kind of what they're playing for in the case of this movie and any way that they can survive and and not it's not just tom hardy and his raf boys who are the heroes of this film more so than the soldiers who are on the beaches it's the the guys who come in their pleasure boats who are kind of like the everyday yeah. heroes oh, yeah. that come. And there's there's only one real moment in this movie, I feel, where there is that kind of rah-rah moment that you see in other war films. And even the music tips you off to this uh, message that Nolan is sending. When, uh, when the, the people on the beaches see the approaching pleasure boats coming, there is this moment where it's yeah. like, all right, hooray, you know, like they're coming... They're going to save Our us. Our and I actually, for us, yeah. I actually thought that it was going to end shortly thereafter. Uh, but when it does end, it's still on the same kind of melancholy note yeah. that is sustained throughout the whole running time. Yeah, and and you know, it's it doesn't dwell on the heroics. It's much more interested in the almost the minutia of how horrifying war can be in a way i mean mm -hmm. i you know i and and this again you know i hate to keep harping on how amazing the, the sound design is in this movie oh it's it's great but there's there's a moment when uh, uh the soldiers have gotten into a boat they think that they're retreating and there's this wonderful wonderful uh moment they all think that they're going home they're in this this destroyer and one of the soldiers that we've sort of been following as we've gone along is out on the deck um, of the of the boat. He's he didn't go into the the uh, you know un, under into the belly of the boat. Um, yeah, and he's standing there, and there's this wonderful moment where he he's looking out over the into the water, and you see this thing moving through the water, and it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that it's a torpedo, and it makes this just like pathetic little like. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sound and it sounds like nothing and then it cuts the inside of the destroyer and th the most thunderous terrifying explosion immediately followed by this whoosh of rushing water it, yeah it it, it 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 totally throws you off you know it's 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 uh and when i say the minutiae of of war and the horrors of war it's that sort of thing it's that like yeah this is a little tube of metal with a propeller on the back of it that floats just at the surface of the water or a little bit under it 
and makes a stupid sound when it moves through the water, but yeah. is absolutely terrifyingly destructive and, and horrifying for, for the people who are affected by it, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, that kind of thing in this movie is astonishing. And can we talk for a moment about the performances in this movie from sort of mm, some of our, our leads here? I want to talk first and foremost about Tom Hardy. We've talked about Tom Hardy before on this podcast. Um, and how he he can turn in some really amazing performances, but in this particular performance, his entire performance is in his eyes, almost right. We we spend the entire movie, you know, two feet from his face, yeah, and just watching him pilot his craft, and it is a, a really moving, really really good performance. Sure. That is entirely in his eyes. The whole thing is is in his eyes. It's amazing. My my humorous uh, comment about that is that he was he prepared for this role by playing Bane for Christopher Nolan yeah. already. <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was like, oh, another movie with Tom Hardy in a mask. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, he is fantastic, and um, and other people have met, have have singled out Tom Hardy too uh, for his ability to convey so much with just just his eyes yeah and i actually thought that um you know uh most of the young soldiers are being played by relative unknowns yeah, yeah. Um, and they but they look great they have a, the the right face they have the right hair and they act well in the situation sure. and you know harry styles is famously yeah. in this film yeah. and i gotta say you know he didn't ruin it no he was I great mean, <laughs> i thought it, he was I great thought, i thought he was just fine and you know, it, and it actually made me feel good because it reminded me of other great films that had the tradition of casting a a, a notable pop star of the time, sure. like Ricky Nelson, yeah. in you know in the latest you know tentpole picture or you know or David Bowie film. in the Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> uh, so yeah, and I think that the film succeeds uh, with the cast. It succeeds with the writing and the directing and the sound design, and it's, yeah. It's pretty freaking amazing, really, um, that that it was – I mean, you can't give Christopher Nolan all the credit, but he is kind of the, the leader behind the army that, that crafted this film. Yeah. And the sound designers, of course, deserve a lot of credit. And the, the – I didn't really realize until recently in my life why it is that very often the first credits that come up at the end of the film, if they're not the director, they're the – unit production manager and the first assistant director. <laughs> yeah. And those people come up very, very quickly at the end. And those are the ones who are kind of like the generals. Yeah. Who organize everything. They're the, they're the people you know? who wrangle all, all of the talent associated with the picture, at least on yeah. set. Um, yeah. And, and that, that's quite a Herculean task. Oh man. And especially for something like this, which relies so heavily on real live human beings being mm-hmm. there in person. I mean, uh, Nolan is slavishly devoted to practical effects, real film, and real people in his movies. Um, Interstellar, of course, is famous for achieving these CGI-like special effects with photographic effects. Um, yeah. Everything that he did in that film is not CG, or at least it, it, it may be slightly augmented by CG, but it is the the core of the effect is something that they achieved in camera. Yeah. And um, and that's astonishing watching a movie like that and, and, and being able to see that. 
And so just just as that is the case in a movie like this, every single person that you see in this movie is a human being. It's an actor representing right. a, a person. It's not it's not a CG person standing there. Yeah. Um, and so then when you take that into account and you think about it, that's even more impressive that. Uh, yeah. And I mean, people like like Wes Anderson um, and maybe to a lesser extent, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, they they are interested in in personal stories and small moments in filmmaking, um, as well as as the the bigger things. But but with this film, Nolan really establishes himself as like the current king of this this grand scale of, oh, yeah. of movie making. Oh yeah, uh, it's truly epic and truly remarkable, um, and I, I think that uh, it deserves all the praise that it's been getting. Yeah. So I, 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 and I would really recommend to anybody who is going to, who's thinking of seeing it, just to see it in IMAX if you can, because it, it really makes a, yeah. a world of difference. I would say, I mean, I highly recommend this film. I think it's a masterpiece of a movie. I think it's an extraordinary film in every way. And I would say that it is almost a requirement that you see it in IMAX. And, and yeah. don't be fooled. Um, it's playing in something like six different formats out there in the world. Um, and one of those formats is 70 millimeter, which is great. It's the next best thing to IMAX. It's super high fidelity film stock. You know, you're going to see, you're going to see it the way that he intended it to be seen for the most part. But the likelihood is that somewhere near you, wherever the IMAX theater is in your city, they're probably playing this movie in 70 millimeter IMAX. And it is, it is a an experience to be had that is unlike anything else that is mm-hmm. happening in cinema and and certainly unlike anything that you can get on your TV at home. So I would say it's unlike anything that even I have experienced in a theater. I would say it's unlike anything that I I don't think any anybody has shot something like this on IMAX film in the history of cinema. Yeah, I mean, this certainly unique... in, in, in my life, I have I haven't uh, nothing really matches it. Yeah, so that's that's pretty remarkable. You yeah. know, I mean, Nolan, uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Quentin Tarantino—they may be kind of like the reigning kings of of American film. Yeah, these days, but think about it—they've only been making films, with <laughs> the exception of with the exception of Tarantino, for about twenty years. Yeah, and even Tarantino's uh, only twenty-five years. Twenty-five. And, you know, that's, you know, that's not that much. Um, so I, I feel hopeful that that we're going to see more more audacity like this yeah. in movies. And I think people who can really back it up and back up that vision. And definitely. Nolan is definitely, he's the man. And this might even end up win, winning Best Picture this year. We'll see. I would say it's, it's a lock for a nomination at the very least. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And a, a, a definite win for the sound design, most likely. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't win sound design, it should win pretty much every technical award. I mean, the dogfights. I can't even fathom how they filmed those dogfights with big, bulky 70-millimeter uh, IMAX cameras. How is that even possible? I don't know. I don't know. It, this is a movie where, this is one of the few movies where I actually want to see the making of because I can't fathom how they accomplished what they they did with this movie because those dogfights are so visceral they're so intense yeah oh man yeah it's well great. i think the takeaway from today's podcast is dunkirk is amazing yeah. you definitely see it on imax yeah it's worth the trip and uh yeah 
stay tuned uh, for our next episode. It's going to be a, uh, a listener's choice where we have a guest coming on to talk about trailers, movie trailers. Yeah. Uh, what do we like about them? What works? What doesn't? What have we observed as trends in trailers? So stick around for that discussion. We'll see you then.